surprisingly, uh, we are welcoming you back to State of Emergency. I'm Peter Schorsch. I'm here with my uh, co-host, uh, Broward County Commissioner-to-be, uh, Jared Moskowitz. I, I was really hoping, Jared, that we were just going to let this podcast, like we were going to go out like Costanza, like we had made our jokes. We were going to go out on top. People liked it. Um, you were off to the county commission. Uh, you know, the, the virus was, we were, people were saying we were at the endemic stage and I was hoping that we were, this was going to fade. Doesn't look like that's the case, does it? The podcast or COVID? <laughs> <laughs> it looks like we're still in a state of emergency. Well, I think that's the point of the podcast, Peter, is that we now live in a constant state of emergency and it's whether it's COVID or buildings are falling or it's a tornado or it's a hurricane or it's some other emergency. That's kind of the point is that right now, for some reason, we're conditioned that there's always these states of emergency going on. Well, let me catch up. You told me offline. So the last time we did talk, you were appointed to the Broward County Commission by Governor Ron DeSantis to fill um, one of the seats that was vacated because of the special election to fill Alcee Hastings congressional seat, but you haven't started that yet. What's the timeline? What's the yeah, it's going? It's going so well right now. So well <laughs> that I have not been sworn in yet. Uh, so the swearing in uh, the seat doesn't actually become vacant until January 11th. Uh, the reason the governor announced it that early is that so my dad could attend the announcement because my dad, unfortunately, is very ill. And we were worried, obviously, that he wouldn't be at uh, the swearing in ceremony. And so the swearing in is on January 25th. Um, I got to ask, I know, again, we talked offline. Um, how is your dad? Uh, I, I know that this is a tough question, but how's he doing? Well, I mean, listen, I'm sure everyone saw the news, you know, that Harry Reid died, uh, you know, yesterday uh, from pancreatic cancer. He had been on a lot of experimental immunotherapy that had seemed to be working for a period of time. But uh, there is no cure to pancreatic cancer. And when you get diagnosed at a significant stage of that illness, it's you become it's all about buying time. All the treatments are about getting you more time. All the procedures about getting you more time. And so, unfortunately, on our end, uh, we've done a lot of those things, uh, and we're uh, we're we're running out of time. So I'm just trying to spend uh, as much time as I can with him. It's why I left the division when I did, uh, because of the diagnosis, so that I could be here. And I can tell you, I don't regret that decision uh, any day, any moment. Uh, you know, being here, being with my family. Uh, you know, and and now getting to be back in public office at home, uh, you know, these were all the right moves. I, I guess this isn't like as easy to ask, but what were the holidays um, like for you? I know that, you know, it was difficult, but, you know, how was Hanukkah? How was the Christmas season down there? How was that for you guys? I mean, listen, it's, it, you know, it, it was it was fine. Uh, you know, I mean, he's been in and out of the hospital. Uh, but, uh, but it was good. I mean, we've got to spend time together, obviously. Um, you know, we don't really do much. We don't really go anywhere. Quite frankly, you know, Omicron makes it very difficult when you're immunocompromised and the family, uh, who, you know, spends time with someone who's immunocompromised has to be very careful as well. So, you know, we've just been spending time together. Hanukkah was great. Uh, Christmas was great. Santa did not come to my house. I've been asking. It hasn't happened. 
Um, and you know, now we're getting into, into new years. And so, you know, uh, you know, 2022 is going to be, is going to be a tough year for, for my family, quite frankly, 2020, 2021 has been a tough year for a lot of families, uh, out there. Uh, and so, you know, I'm not really looking forward, uh, to the new year. It's like, I think the first time I can actually say that, uh, but, uh, you know, look, you know, every, you got to take one day at a time. Well, uh, I, you know, that's, uh, uh, our listeners, I think, you know, understand where you're at. And I will say, you know, I get a lot of feedback, like, how is Jared doing people like you're, you're a relatively well-liked person for whatever reason. Um, and you know, I'm glad we're doing the pod because people are coming to me and they're like, Hey, how's Jared doing? Like, I hope you guys don't stop this because I really like listening. They like getting your take on the stuff. And so, um, you know, I'm doubling down here saying, you know, let's keep this, keep the band together as best as possible. I know that that's going to be difficult going into 2022, but I hope that, you know, I hope that this could be a high point for you um, going into the next year. Yeah. Look, Simon and Garfunkel, you know, they did some things together. You know, they left for a little bit. They came back. It was exciting. You know, so we'll, we'll play a couple more shows. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> um, okay. Well, the, the top of the bill is, um, is Omicron, which um, it, it's not surprising. I think what's going on. I think like, if you, if you follow this as closely as you do, as closely as I do, um, you know, we read what was happening in South Africa. Uh, I mean, it's like World War Z. You hear what's happening in another country. Then you hear what's happening in a, a second country, you know, it was London was the epicenter. Um, our, we had a trip this week planned to London and that was canceled out uh, or we canceled it just because we feared that there's just no sense traveling into a hot spot like that. Um, and then, you know, you knew that floor or you knew that the United States was going to be, you know, was going to be impacted. I will say, and this is one of the questions that I've asked over this last week, you know, we knew that the United States was going to get it. I don't think that we thought Florida was going to get hit as badly as it has, given the fact that we had this really bad summer surge. You would have thought that, and I don't mean to equate people with, you know, leaves, but maybe, you know, the forest had burned out a little bit, uh, or maybe that we had, we had, you know, we had learned some things and it looks like, I got to lay this at the feet of the administration. It looks like we had, we're having the same surge everyone else is right now. Uh, New York and Florida, not surprisingly, tourism capitals of the country are getting hammered, but New York did not have the summer surge and California did not have the summer surge and we did, and we went through it. And I, I wonder if that, if we actually needed to go through as bad a surge as we did. So I actually can explain that with without you know the yeah. politics of of all of that's it. That's why so, we have you here. So so ultimately, what what happened is we got a summer surge because this virus is has been up until Omicron. This virus has had a seasonal behavioral impact to it, which is in summer months in very hot areas, people go inside, they turn on the air conditioning, right? And that adds to the spread of the virus. In winter months, it's cold outside, people go inside, pump the heat, 
it adds to the spread of the virus. It's why the, the colder states spike in the winter. It's why the warmer states spike in the summer. That is what's happened with Alpha uh, and Delta, the two big spikes. We saw that. So we got our summer spike with Delta in the summer. The winter month, the winter states, New York, Michigan, all those states, they were in the middle of their Delta spike. So they were going to get the same spike we got. And then all of a sudden, here comes Omicron. And what does Omicron do? Omicron takes over and in a lot of ways replaces Delta. By the way, the northern states still have Delta. The reason why the northern states are seeing a higher hospitalization rate than the southern states, the hotter states, is because they still have Delta. But Omicron is the dominant variant. So why are we having a second spike? It's very simple. It's because a year and a half's worth of knowledge and science and medicine and mitigation measures, okay, are unfortunately not working on Omicron. So the reason why Miami-Dade County, for example, didn't have a huge Delta surge like they did with Alpha, Miami-Dade County was not ground zero in Florida for Delta. And that was a combination of immunity gained from Alpha, vaccine immunity, a lot of testing sites that were available. So mitigation measures worked there. Why is Miami-Dade County now the hotspot in Florida for Omicron? It's very simple because we're having significant vaccine breakthrough. Delta immunity does not give you Omicron immunity. And so we're back to basically where we were before Delta, right? Where it spreads, it's very transmissible. Uh, Omicron is, you know, 70 times more transmissible than Delta. So what I'm really saying, Peter, is that timing for the Northern states uh, was just on their side when Omicron hit. If, okay, Omicron, well, if Omicron had hit in February or March, they would have had a Delta spike in December. They would have gone out of their Delta spike right into an Omicron spike. All right. Well, that's what angers me, Jared. And, you know, um, we don't have to get into my anger, all of it right now. But what has angered me from day one is the hathos that goes with the Ron DeSantis administration in pitting the states against each other and and almost mocking New York, California, New Jersey, Illinois, the Democratic blue states um, and turning it into a blue state, red state. You know, the governor's spokesperson, you know, calling out states for when they're go when they're going through the shit. Um, after we've gone through what we went through, because you don't know what is around the corner, like two months ago, no one knew what Omicron was. And I, you know, and I also, I'll, I know that, and I hope that the chances of this happening uh, are, are slim, but I don't believe that beta zeta tomato is not around the corner here. Like we say that it's not, like they're saying right now, you know, that, you know, that maybe that there's a hope that Omicron will snuff out Delta, that, you know, that it gets there first and builds up an immunity. Yeah, it does, but why can't anybody in 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 Fauci world or DeSantis world acknowledge, you know, the Rumsfeldian truth, which is we just don't know what we don't know. And I, I hate the I just hate the hey, New York City's having a surge. Look at those assholes. And then I hate when New York and the and the 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 media, you know, 
oh, uh, DeSantis is killing everyone down there. There's record cases. You know, we had a we had record a record caseload yesterday. We reported zero deaths. Now that isn't to mean I know cases are a leading indicator, <laughs> et cetera. Um, and we will have some deaths from Omicron, undeniably. But we had 43,000 cases or something like that, and we had zero deaths. So as everybody is proving, Ron DeSantis is proving right, maybe we shouldn't be looking at cases. Maybe we should be looking more at hospitalizations. We've been saying that in Florida for you know six or seven months. But what happens when the hospitalizations go up, et cetera? And that's why I, I just, I, I guess I'm frustrated. Well, let me divide that into two things. So first of all, I don't know why both administrations, quite frankly, that have been dealing with COVID at the federal level, why we haven't talked to people like adults by saying, hey, this virus is going to go up and down. It's going to have surges. It's going to it's going to wax and wane. So we'll when we're at one percent positivity rate, we don't have, we won't do a lot of mitigation measures and we'll get get back to life. But when it goes to 15 and 20, you know, that's the time when we need to do mitigation measures and we're going to have to learn to live with it. This idea that we're going to snuff out the flu because it is a coronavirus, it's not going to happen. We're going to have to learn with it, learn to live with it. The medicine will get better and will eventually it will hit an endemic state. So I don't know why we just haven't been telling people that. I think the scientists have known that. And for some reason, they've just not wanted to tell us. Well, what the way they've messaged COVID is emergency management communications 101 failure. Yeah, you can't right. t- you can't tell people not to evacuate and then come back to them two days later and say you must evacuate. You get one opportunity to give deliver that message. Otherwise, you know what happens? They don't evacuate. They don't believe you anymore. You can't switch the message. You can't say, oh, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear masks up to two months later. Well, you know, you should wear masks again. You can't do that. So that's number one. Number two is I did. I agree with you. I don't like this you know, oh, we're at 0%, we're at 1%, we're in blue and they're at red, you know, they're a hotspot and we're not. I don't like that, but I will. And so you're right that that we shouldn't be doing that. The, the but is, and I know you know what I'm going to say, is I do believe because I was there and I still think it carries over, is that that has been in response to how much the media has wanted to highlight yeah, Florida right. in, right. in, in COVID-19. Yep. Listen, right now, if you look at New York and Florida, you look at both of us, there is a quite different level of government mitigation measure, right? New York has mandatory masking. New York has vaccine passports. New York has vaccine mandates. And we're both performing almost the same with Omicron. And so I, I think if, you know, if you're if you're the DeSantis folks and you feel that you've been under attack, rightly or wrongly, some of it brought on maybe by themselves, some of it because just it's Florida and it's Ron DeSantis and it's been like that now for two years. That's why you do it. Do they go too far? Do they? We know all, all the answers to that. Uh, but I, I just think like right now, like, quite frankly, when I look at Twitter or I, or I turn on the television, every state is in the red zone, every state. But they are still talking about Florida. And so, you know, this obsession with us is what has bred Florida to push back with the comparisons. And I will say it doesn't help when you do have like Joe Biden, like that line is about uh, that he made this week, which was um, there's and I'm paraphrasing. There's no federal. It was and it was taken out of context. But he said there's no federal solution. And this is up to the governors when, you know, last year we had a complete you know he's telling he literally told ron DeSantis, you know to, to get out of the way you're just you're just asking for 
the very strong, very focused conservative media to have a field day with it. Uh, you know, Jared, and before we bring our guest on, I will say that, I'll that's with- a good point, though. Can, can we can we talk Joe Biden just for a second? Uh, yeah, of course we can. We can. I so, mean, so I don't listen. know why you're not up in the Biden administration, to be honest. But that's another that's a story for another day. So 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 listen, you know, I, I voted for Joe Biden. I've had Joe Biden in my house. I'm a huge Joe Biden supporter. I believe he's been one of the greatest public servants ever. He dedicated his life to public Hashtag service. Humble brag. You've had Joe Biden at your house. I mean, come on. I love it. <laughs> well, you know, subtle. So I slipped it. I slipped it in. But but I will tell you, I I have really not seen a larger communications mistake in a long time. I mean, he ran the campaign on that we were going to snuff out the virus. He ran the campaign on a federal solution. Remember, Trump was failing at that. I'm not going to fail. Federal solution. Yeah. And I understand the virus has changed on them. The facts on the ground have changed. But to run out of antibodies to run out of tests and to then say there's no federal solution. I got to be honest uh, that 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 is going to be something that hangs around now for the next couple of years. People are going to people are going to use the last couple of weeks now that there was a lack of antibody treatments, a lack of home tests, uh, and that it didn't look like they were prepared getting into Omicron when they've built the whole campaign around COVID. Um, okay, let's bring on our guest for this uh, uh, episode, who's, I want to say, other than the ER surgeons, kind of on the front lines of what's going on with a lot of this. Justin Sr., he's the Chief Executive Officer for the Safety Net Hospital Alliance of Florida, uh, which is interesting. I did not know that there was a trapeze component to hospital administration and that you use nets uh, underneath that, Justin, is that how this works? Yeah, we, we, we catch people when they fall. That is what the safety net hospital Alliance is for. We'll take anyone who walks in the door, <laughs> regardless of their ability to pay and regardless of their health status. So that's, uh, yes, there is a trapeze aspect of it. Give, uh, give our folks, our listeners, what's an example or two, um, throughout the state of, uh, of what a safety of who a safety net of, of a safety net hospital, like which one yeah. is that? So we, we are we are children's hospitals, public hospitals, and large academic medical centers, and and uh, all of our members are nonprofit. Uh, and and what uh, what sets the safety net hospital apart is, is the willingness to take anyone who walks through the door. A lot of there are a lot of great hospitals in the state of Florida. Not all of them are safety nets. There's a lot of great non-safety net hospitals. But generally, if you're looking at a for-profit hospital or you're looking at a, a nonprofit that doesn't really take very that, that kind of limits its 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 scope of business. Um, what you'll see is that they, they do very well and do a great job with very specific lines of business that tend to be high volume and, and high margin. The safety net hospitals, because of the public mission and the teaching mission, they, they offer every service regardless, even the low volume, really high cost procedures. So the margins tend to be tighter. And that's where you go ultimately if you need a transplant. That's where you go if you need some sort of complex procedure that your public hospital offers because it's there to serve the public and it runs every line of business. They tend to be located in areas that are accessible to everyone in the population, low income and high income, and they take every patient that walks through the door and can generally handle uh, a lot of different types of cases. Um, and so it's just, it, it's not better or worse, it's, it's just different. All right, and for 
our listeners, you're you're kind of the wonk, one of the wonky people. You're not necessarily a household name, but you are. You've been in. I don't know. You're at the nexus of healthcare policy. Before you were in charge of Safety Net, tell us, tell the audience about what you did. A little bit about your background. Give us the thirty second um, background on who you are. Sure. For the most part, I had two positions during the Scott administration. Uh, first, for about five years of it, I was the Medicaid director in the state of Florida. So running the, the program that serves low-income Floridians, uh, pregnant women and children uh, primarily, as well as disabled adults. Um, and then after that, I was the secretary of the Agency for Healthcare Administration for between two and three years at the end of the Scott administration. And uh, that position both is in charge of the Medicaid program and also uh, regulates all of the healthcare facilities in the state, nursing homes, assisted living facilities, and hospitals. So Joe Biden has not been to your house? Is what he you has know. not been to my house. He really has not. But, uh, you know, that's not to say I, I wouldn't invite him or he wouldn't be welcome if he showed up there, but no, he's not been. <laughs> so, so, Justin, I want to I I talk about the safety nets uh, because I think, obviously, we've learned a lot more because of COVID. The, the importance of the safety nets. I mean, you guys in the state of Florida have, not that the, not that the private hospitals haven't, uh, because all the hospitals obviously have taken the brunt of COVID, but the safety nets have really been at the forefront of serving the community at COVID. And I think for all the debate in Tallahassee about hospitals and how much money they need and all of that, I mean, to be quite honest, I, it's an unfortunate scenario, but I don't think there's been a better case in which why it's so important uh, that we support uh, support these safety nets. I mean, there are some amazing hospitals down here in South Florida, Memorial Healthcare, Jackson Memorial, that yeah. are part of the safety nets. Uh, and, and they have, they've, you know, they've been, both those hospitals have been ground zero for taking in uh, COVID patients down here. And oh, by the way, it's not just that they're safety nets and they take everyone in. It's also some of the best doctors in the area, some of the best yeah. medicine, some of the best cutting edge technology. And, and so like, you know, what I want to hear from your end is like, I want to hear about how are the hospitals doing? How is the administration doing? How are the doctors doing? How are the nurses doing? I mean, we have to we have to recognize reality that there is going to be some sort of major long term impact on the hospital system because of COVID. Yeah, it, it, we've been we've been there on the forefront from from the beginning, um, and and we've had a, a specialized role really because of uh, because of what our hospitals do at every every phase of the pandemic. We've had some sort of special role. Early on, we were the ones with the sophisticated labs that could run the tests and turn around the the tests within twenty four hours before tests were widely available. Um, in the middle of the pandemic, we were the ones doing sort of the clinical trials on things like Regeneron, hydroxychloroquine to figure out what worked and what didn't and, and coming up with some of the arsenal of treatments that we're seeing now, as well as ruling some out. And, uh, and obviously but you, during, you did not test bleach. There was no bleach testing. Or, we, or, we actually ruled it out pretty quickly. So no, so, no, no light <laughs> at the body, right? No, no none of that. Okay. We did not inject any. And uh, yeah. Um, we also uh, have the cold storage capability, so helped quarterback a lot of the vaccine distribution in the early stages. Uh, you know, I mean, at, at every stage we've had we've had some sort of role uh, where we we've, we've tried to step up. And all hospitals in the state have really it's really improved communication across across what ordinarily have been battle lines, is, and and people have really come to work together and, and trust each other. South Florida is a great example of that. The level of communication. The real issue here is is the burnout of staff at this point. That's that's kind of the main. Uh, the main issue, and uh, and it, it, it's something that's that's real. 
Um, and uh, and what, what we had as we walked into this pandemic is, and we kind of knew it, is that there was a nationwide shortage of, of nurses and respiratory therapists and those types of specialists. And, and, and ultimately now, as we head into the pandemic, and, and when, you, when you treat these types of patients, it is so labor intensive in terms of controlling the number of people that are allowed into a room, in terms of donning and doffing personal protective equipment. It really slows down your processes. You burn uh, consumable medical supplies and you, and you ask your employees to engage in a really tense process uh, that, that, that bogs them down and, 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 uh, and, and slows down their procedures because hospitals are, all hospitals are in the business of infection control. Every time you've been in a hospital, you're in that hospital with someone who is infectious with pneumonia or influenza or something uh, that that uh, that others could catch. And the hospital, the ventilation system, the alloys in the metal fixtures, uh, the donning and doffing of personal protective equipment, everything that the hospital is doing is there to prevent that infection from getting to the pa- the other patients and getting to the staff or, or anything that would allow an infected patient to be a conduit for that infection to another patient. So it's, it's extremely tense dealing with this. And I think what you're seeing is a lot of, particularly in the nursing profession, a lot of retirements getting pulled forward that is exacerbating the nursing shortage. And, and they, the only real way to solve this, I mean, the price of nursing and the, and the, the, uh, the labor expense of hospitals have gone through the roof. And, and the only way that's going to reach equilibrium is when the supply uh, and demand sort of evens out and supply of nurses takes a couple of years to train a nurse. I mean, it's not something that's going to come, on, come overnight. So uh, it's, it's been very, very difficult. And Omicron coming, um, uh, it's, it's starting to build in the hospitals. There's a, there's a lot of detail there. There's some, there's some silver linings to what we're seeing initially that hopefully will pan out. Uh, but it's going to be, I think, an extremely busy January at Florida's hospitals. I, um, and Justin, I don't know if you know or not, but uh, so I'm, Jared and I both had a tough year, but um, I didn't know. I, I did. went to the hospital and, um, and, it's, it's shaped a lot of my thinking, you know, just because it's just, you don't see it until you see it. Um, and in fact, I, I like, this isn't like, not to outdo Jared or anything like that. Cause he can't, cause I remember that when my father passed, but like I had a breakdown on Christmas just because it just finally came home to me what, it, what Michelle had gone through. And so like, I'm suffering through this, like, I didn't even realize it's like PTSD. And if I'm suffering from that, from one little not little, one episode with one person. I cannot imagine what those nurses and ICU doctors, like I can't even imagine their psychology. They're not robots. Uh, no. I mean, they're just not. And they are just, it's, it is a wave upon wave um, for these people. Um, and they're just like, I, I, you know, the argument about from the unvaccinated, you know, about freedom of choice and so forth. I. I I spend 20 minutes at the Baycare ICU where I was at, where it went from eight people on half of a floor to they had to fill up four floors and they were starting to relocate mental health patients into regular parts of the hospital because they needed additional room. And so you had literally, you had screaming patients next to regular patients, which was something that we went through. Do, do people just not get it? Do they not understand what these nurses and doctors are going through? I would say they that there's they probably don't uh, and and so they they probably don't understand what the, what scenes are playing out at their local hospital um, and uh, the idea of people being face down prone um, the visitation restrictions and what it's like to pass what what it was like in 2020 and 2021 
to, to, to be in the hospital, potentially to pass away and your loved ones on the outside in terms of people trying to control the visitation to prevent infection from spreading. Um, it's difficult. I, I, I can say that you know, what you do see, and, and we saw it in the Delta surge, that along with the surge of infections and hospitalizations, it was a major surge in vaccinations in the state of Florida. Uh, that was gratifying to see, but that's probably, that, that's probably experience-based learning in, in my estimation, right? You start to know people that this has happened to, whether it's your own loved one or the family next door, where you could definitely see a pattern at the hospital uh, that it was, it was primarily unvaccinated adults that were being hospitalized. And that sort of word of mouth did lead, I think it was gratifying to see to a significant uptick in the, in the vaccination rate in the state of Florida. And, and, I, and we are still seeing, and I talked about silver linings. We've seen upticks in the, in the last 10, 10, day, 10 to 14 days, significant upticks in the number of hospitalizations. We are still not seeing a lot of vaccinated patients coming in with a primary di diagnosis of COVID-19. So, so it's still, uh, it does still seem to us that from a hospitalization and fatality standpoint, that the, the vaccines that we have are still highly protective. Yeah, so I think that's true. I think you're, if you look at the ICU numbers, right, they are tracking lower than they did with Delta. It's still early. I, you know, we yeah. don't want to we don't want to declare anything because this has always been a moving target. In fact, that's what happens is we come out, we make it some declarative statement, and then COVID makes us look like we didn't know what we were talking about. Uh, but the early data does indicate that while hospitalizations are up, it's because of the sheer amount of people getting Omicron. Yep. Uh, but that it looks like you know, antibodies, vaccinations, uh, and maybe Omicron just being a little weaker is not translating into ICUs. I am still worried about nursing homes. Um, you know, a, you know, a lot of data that came out of South Africa, they don't have the same nursing home population that we have. So looking at more of the UK data is, is, is educational. So I still think we, we, we got to watch that. I think we've, we, we have a 10 day crazy calendar that just feeds COVID. We have Christmas, yep. then we have New Year's, and then we have the return of school. Uh, and I got to be honest, I'm really worried about schools uh, where I think the data was uh, uh, very, uh, you know, very uh, promising with Delta and Alpha that schools really weren't ve vectors. Uh, but I, I am concerned that Omicron is going to spread in the schools and we're going to see you know, a, a lot of quarantining as a result. We're going to see a lot of teachers. We're going to have staff issues there, just like you're having in the hospitals with, you know, that's something that didn't happen with Delta and Alpha. You had staff issues because of the industry. But now with Omicron, hospitals are having staff issues because so many of them are getting Omicron. Yeah. I think we're going to see that in the schools. One thing I want to touch on, because I think it's important, is the reason why I'm able to do this podcast right now. My dad's in the hospital. I can't get in. Right. And, yeah. and I got and I got to yeah. tell you yep. um, that not only is that hard for the families to deal with, yeah. right, hey. whether it's covid or non covid with families in the hospital, not only is it hard for us not to be there, but when I have been there, the doctors, the nurses, the CNAs, they are having to do way more outside of the scope of work than they had to do before COVID because they now are having to be caretakers. They now are having to act as a friend or a loved one. People in the hospital are lonely when, when these shutdowns happen. And that really is, a, it, that's a real thing, by the way. 
being lonely in the hospital because your family cannot be with you, whether it's for a procedure, whether it's life ending situations, you know, or or, you know, whether it's some other reason that you're there uh, and the mental toll that it has taken on staff, because I've seen it because they're having to be there uh, uh, as people are very sick. Uh, you know, that that's something that I don't think these heroes have gotten a lot of credit for. Yeah, it, it's it's an it's it really has been a, a, a it's been a terrible situation, really, for, for 2020 and 2021 in, in terms of the visitation that has to be restricted and, and the way that families have had to say goodbye to loved ones or really the inability of families to say goodbye to a loved one in, in the in the way that they should and 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 the way that they traditionally have. And I, I have to say, you know, it's these policies are, are very difficult on the staff too, like you mentioned. I mean, it's uh, it's something that, that does put the staff at the forefront in terms of making sure that they are a companion in some ways to the patients that they're dealing with. Um, for the patients that have actually gone in, been in the hospital for a prolonged period of time and survived, uh, I, I think you'd get a real picture of how lonely it is in there, not really being able to have the contact with their loved ones that you'd normally expect when you go into the hospital. Actually, Jared, I'm looking back August 3, I posted on Facebook and I said, anyone who is unvaccinated and tells you their status doesn't impact others is full of crap. The hospital where Michelle is at just tightened its visitation rules to only one adult per day. That means Michelle's mom and I can't split the days as we have on many days. And if Michelle's mom or I start the day with Michelle, no one else can visit her. Um, and, and it only got worse where they, you know, they were shutting down visitation. I, 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 I wish... I wish the unvaccinated, uh, I wish the vaccine hesitant could hear from all of those people um, impacted just by that, from the people that you have a loved one in a hospital like you do and, and, and you can't go see them. And, and it's, it is a direct result. I, one of the things that so upset me was, I, so when Michelle was in the ICU, again, there was only about eight patients we had 24 one-on-one -on -one care from an ICU RN nurse. She was, they were all amazing. They were, uh, they were like the army rangers of nurses. They were just so capable and, a fit and competent. Um, but then the ICU starts to fill up. And now the nurse is having to take care of the COVID patient, which means she's got to spend 20 minutes getting, you know, PPD'd up. And then she's got to spend 20 minutes on the backside when she moves rooms. And that's when it was two patients. And then it became three. And then suddenly my wife was getting 20 minutes of care an hour, maybe at best. And, and that's the direct impact. And that's somebody who, you know, the person that has a heart attack or who has cancer and is dying or what have, they're getting impacted by the person who decided not to get vaccinated. Yeah, I think the visual is important, Peter. I mean, I just, in my experiences, you know, in life, I, I just think that people can be in denial when they just hear about it or they can't see something maybe on a news clip or they read about it on Twitter, you know, but, but if they haven't experienced it personally, if they haven't witnessed it, if they haven't seen it themselves with their own eyes, uh, and that was just my experience also with Parkland, right? When, when I brought people to the school who, you know, wouldn't have helped us without seeing it. I think just sometimes seeing these things unfold with your own eyes, really, you, you know, you all of the noise, all of the distraction, all of the all of the the, the nonsense 
um, re- really goes really goes away. Um, in, in fact, uh, there's a there's a great movie on Netflix, which is pretty it's pretty hilarious if you look at it uh, as I did. Um, I think it's called Look Up. Uh, is the Don't name look up. Don't, Don't look, up. look up. So, by the way, I mean, what a great part when when society recognized that they could just look up with their own eyes. Right. And they saw it themselves. And all of a sudden there was a campaign telling people, don't look up, (laughs) you know, don't don't trust your own eyes. But it but what it makes what it reinforces, quite frankly, is unless you experience stuff yourself and you see it in today's day and age, you just don't believe these things or it's not as bad as they're telling us. And I can tell you, while things are better in the hospital now than they were during Alpha, when there wasn't enough PPE, there wasn't vaccines. And so it is definitely better now than it was in Alpha. In Alpha, it was, you know, in a lot of, in a lot of cases, it was like a war zone. Um, but the burden that hospital workers have had to take on doing more tasks than usual um, I mean, quite frankly, Justin's talking about having to recruit. I don't know how you recruit at the moment because, it, it, you know, it, what, what they're doing at these hospitals, having to do, this is beyond just medical care, um, you know, at, at the moment. And so, you know, this is something that states are going to grapple with uh, as, uh, as they move forward in the budget cycle. But it's something that legislators in Tallahassee should take into account. Go visit, go visit a hospital, Right. Before you vote on the budget, right, and you want to know why hospitals need so much help, go go visit a hospital. Go see what's going on there. Go see the operation. Uh, go see, you know, uh, you know how how nurses and doctors are all PPD PPD up, and 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 how they have to you know perform medicine uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, I think that's important. Go to the children's hospitals. Go see what they're doing and how they're taking care of kids. Um, go see it for yourself. Don't don't listen to me. Don't listen to Peter. Uh, but I think that's real important. I think it's, you know, this is proven, especially especially the safety nets, uh, why it's so important that we support these hospitals. All right. I know we're preaching to the choir with this. Let's uh, let's not lighten things up, but let's uh, pivot to, like you say, before session, Justin, you're, you're, you're what, 10 days or, or no, we're about two weeks out from session, weeks. right? Yeah. Um, what are you looking at? What's the... Uh, What's the big goal for you all this year? I know it's always going to be funding, but um, remember this is an insider's audience, so yeah. you can break it down. What 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 are you looking at this session? Um, for, from our standpoint, we are looking at the budget closely. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's been it's been an interesting couple of years. I, I feel like hospitals generally um, have shown their their value in in terms of what they add to the state of Florida, um, and uh, and so we're hoping that there are no budget cuts. Uh, that are coming to any hospitals in the, in the state of Florida, that the entire system is kind of held whole uh, from where it was last year. Um, and, uh, and, and we're, we're talking with the stakeholders, uh, we're ta- excuse me, the policymakers about that, making sure that the, the members understand uh, the significance of their, of their local hospital. Because it really is not, you know, when, when, when a hospital is in the community, and, and I feel like the hospitals, not just our hospitals, every hospital in the state uh, has, has done a heroic job in the last two years um, in, in, in terms of serving, in terms of serving Florida, it's important that the members understand the contribution that their local hospital hospital and the people that work at their local hospitals have made to the success of that community and to the health of that community, saving lives every day. And so we're, we're hopeful that that message resonates and that, uh, and that 
uh, in, a, in a, what I think from a cash standpoint is a good budget year uh, that, uh, that hospitals aren't, uh, aren't singled out for any sort of uh, pain or punishment. All right, well, we, will, um, we appreciate you coming on today. Um, we wish you good fortune in 2022. Um, I will always say, and I know you do, um, you better call Christine Sexton back as soon as, uh, as she asks for something, uh, you know, I, I, I know that he knows, you do. I, he knows I do. Don't believe her if she says I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, we appreciate all of your insights into, you know, the front lines of, uh, another surge, uh, in the, um, yeah. coronavirus battle. Yeah. And let me, could I just say some, some of numbers that's out of Miami, uh, just so people have a, an understanding and, and there's, and I think Jared's point is well taken that this is really early on. So these numbers can change. And, and this has been a very difficult thing to predict. Out of Jackson yesterday, um, it appeared that, that their, their numbers have, have more than doubled in the last 10 days in terms of the number of people in the hospital. But more than two thirds of them are what are referred to as incidental COVID patients. Yeah, they're um, not coming in with COVID. We're finding out correct. that they have COVID. That's right. And what, but the pressure that puts on the hospital, people need to understand is that that puts pressure still on the hospital because once that person comes in to give birth, and that's, that seems to be the most common, they're coming in to give birth, they test positive upon their admission. You then have to put all of these protective measures around them uh, in terms of making sure that that infection doesn't get to the transplant patients, to the cancer patients, right? You've got to make sure that that doesn't happen, that it doesn't get to the staff and then get make its way over to the other patients. Um, so it's still having a major impact at the hospitals, but there's a hope, at least a glimmer that has not been dispelled by the facts yet and hopefully will not, that, that maybe this is not going to be as harsh in terms of being a primary driver of hospitalization the way that Delta was. I mean, we are still seeing that 80% of Jackson's patients are, uh, are, are, are unvaccinated. So even though the, the, the Miami data is so heavily vaccinated, that population, it's still the unvaccinated adult population that is most likely to end up in the hospital with a primary diagnosis. And, and they've actually been sequencing them in Jackson. It's 97% Omicron. Yeah, and there's no doubt, there is no doubt for any of the naysayers out there, yes, the, the communications should have been better on, you can still get COVID if you get the vaccine, but, but yeah. the data is clear. It's been clear and it's still holding up that the people who are vaccinated are not getting seriously ill. Um, and that that is the most critical reason on why you should go get vaccinated. I, I don't understand this. This Correct. is such an easy, like, it's such an easy bet. Like, if I tell you right now, I have got a, for two, it takes two minutes, and you'll never get seriously injured in a car accident for the rest of your life. Like, you'll, you'll just never get, like, you might get into a car accident. You might, you might, you might get scratched up a little bit but you're never going to go through the window. You're never going to have to use the jaws of life. Who would not be running out to the store to buy that package? I, I just, I, I don't, I just don't get people. Plus, plus to be quite honest, since I've been taking the MRNA vaccine, I've actually grown an inch. So, you know, it's, it's been you're good up to four, me. six. Wow. Good job. <laughs> uh Oh, <laughs> All right. On that note, Justin, thank you for joining us. Happy New Year to you and yours. Yeah. And we'll talk Likewise. to you again during session. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Justin. Bye. Uh, what, a height joke just like kills the room? What are you doing? I mean, I, I, that was an easy one for you. 
Yeah. You went uh, too low with four six though. It should have been like a five one, five two thing. I, I, you know, I don't really know how tall people are. Like that's like I never know how old people are either. Does that make sense? Like, sure, like, I but, never, I, I, but I, sure, but if we were at a carnival, right, where you play that game, <laughs> I think I think for me it would be easier to guess my height than my age. Well, I would say you're a 14 year old boy. I mean, what are you? <laughs> Very nice. Thank you. Um, Thank you. It's not that we're going long, but, you know, I'm just glad to have you back on. Um, I, I thought that we talked about it. We have a great. I mean, do we do we want to talk politics this week? I mean, does it matter? I mean, no, I, I, I think it matters. Can, can I can I bring up a couple of things? Yes, of course. Why, why are you asking me? I'm not. So, just, I'm not. so I am. I am. And I know it's still early. But is it me or does it feel like the the Democratic candidates can't break in, can't break into the cycle, the gubernatorial media cycle? It just seems like we're less than a year away from probably going to be the most watched gubernatorial campaign in the country. And and now we get Omicron, obviously, that that changes the whole cycle again. But it just I just feel like it, I'm not it's not breaking through. I mean, what are your thoughts on all of that? I think I think you're right. To me, it feels like um, uh, Jeb Bush in was it uh, 2004 um, about not Jeb Bush, uh, George W. Bush. He couldn't get into the Democrats couldn't get anywhere in Florida because there was that. I think there was four back to back hurricanes in the middle of the season. And so Jeb was doing the whole you know, put on the windbreaker thing for for two months, rightly so, did an amazing job. And it just basically, I remember I was working in DC for um, uh, for Soros um, <laughs> or for somebody aligned with that. And they just, they the, the National Democrats were so upset because they couldn't get physically into Florida to do anything. And so they couldn't get any momentum, couldn't build, build field operations. And I feel like um, I feel like that that's what's going on right now. Really, the only thing that the Democrats, Nikki can do, Nikki Freed can do what she's doing, which is, you know, get go get a booster shot and maybe, you know, ask where is Ron DeSantis. But, you know, Charlie's really off the radar um, right now. I, I think it's almost telling. They're so not a presence right now in, in the campaign trail that a very flawed candidate like Nikki Freed is kind of, able to hang in there, you know, despite just, you know, lackluster fundraising and, and just a whole wave of issues, she's able to really hang in there because th- who's going to push her or not, like, but what's going to push her out? Like why, like, it's not like the other folks are breaking through. It's not like it's a clear case for Charlie Chris. They're all just kind of mired in obscurity right now. Well, she's been, she's been the number one attack uh, dog on Ron DeSantis for the last couple of years. And that's, that, that still obviously is going for her. And when, when she does those things that, that does get break into the, the media cycle for, for, for an, for a moment. And so now when you get Omicron and the media is focusing on it, it gives her uh, a spotlight to do that. So that, that, that strategy is still, is still uh, kind of working for her. But, but I mean, Peter, I'm just trying to think, and I, I've been involved in the democratic party a long time. And, well, you had but, Joe but, Biden at your house, right? Well, others too, uh, but but uh, I'm just trying to think, like, and maybe like you're more of a historian than I am. I can't remember a lower point for the party 
I mean, we we don't even have a full slate of candidates, attorney general, ag commissioner, CFO. We, we don't even have a full slate of candidates to run. I mean, you know, we, Val Demings is a shining star, right? But there's no support behind her because we haven't filled out the slate of candidates. I mean, you, can you remember a time where we're going to roll into January and we don't even have people running for all of these positions? I, um, and maybe it's where I'm at, you know, I'm not in South Florida. So I, 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 and I don't know why I call it the Ryan Tyson theory. Maybe it's, he kind of articulated it first, but he was basically talking about how quickly voter registration is changing. And I think you're, I think you are starting to hear, like there was a lot of, there was a lot of stories about net migration last week and about how much Florida and Texas grew in California and New York trunk. Um, I think everybody who is locked down, who is, you know, fou- you know, don't Fauci my Florida and all that. I think that they re- I think like tens of thousands of them, if not hundreds, came to Florida. I and 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 really like I'm telling you, just driving around Orlando, Tallahassee, Jacksonville, as we have this last month, I don't want to say the state has changed. And I'm not saying it's a negative. I'm just saying there's just a lot of there's a lot of pickup trucks from out of state with out of state plates on them. I guess it's tourism season. I get it, but it's just, and it's not a Trumpian thing. It is just a people relocating because they feel like Florida is not locked down. And quite honestly, Michelle and I said it to each other yesterday. We said, you know, we don't agree with a lot of this guy's policies, um, but man, it is nicer to live in Florida right now than it is you know, we've been back, we've gone to DC, we've gone to New York. They are, they are still, you know, post-war cities, basically. Like they feel bombed out. And there is, like we were in Georgetown two weeks ago. There are homeless people everywhere. Um, like the things that Fox News and Tucker Carlson say, you know, you get up to the big cities. Listen, New York City is worse now than it was you know, I, I lived in New York. I, I, I go there five, six times a year. Bill de Blasio was not a good mayor. Like he let it slip from where Bloomberg is. Maybe Eric Adams can change it. And so I think that there is, I just think that there are more Republicans here. I think Florida is like when Trump won by 3.5%, I think everybody thought, whoa, that's that's not how you win elections in Florida. It's usually a, it's a recount or you know, that kind of, I think that's where the state is right now. Like, I think, you know, if the election were today, DeSantis would be winning by, I don't know, by like where it would be like a 54, 46, 55, 45 kind of race. Yeah. I mean, listen, uh, you know, I traveled around the state. I went to places that I, I, I had never been before first with hurricane Michael. And then obviously, uh, with with the pandemic. And so, you know, you know, you get an education, you get outside of your bubble, right? And you can see kind of the other bubble. Uh, and, and you realize that, you know, we don't really know a lot about each other anymore and how we think. And, and that's just how it's not just here. That's what's just what's going on. Um, but I, I just Democrats have a lot of fight in them. Okay, and uh, and they're angry about a lot of things, and there are a lot of Democrats in this state, um, and I and I just I'm not seeing the movement. Where where is that movement? Uh, 
And you, you could probably come up with all sorts of reasons that, oh, you know, Congress has been dismaying or school closings or like all of those, you know, potential reasons that maybe the independents are leaning more towards the Republicans this cycle. And it's it's a Republican year. Uh, but but I, for some reason, I'm just not I'm not feeling the the on the ground energy that Democrats need uh, to try to, to to help Val Demings, because, you know, right now, and, and I don't think there's much great debate that right now is the best chance I think that we have of, of changing anything uh, in the dynamic is, is, is Val Demings. And, and I, just, I, th- I don't I, know. I, think I, it's, I, I will say I've made my deals with the devil in the past and, and they worked out and I'm proud of like, I don't think St. Petersburg is going to change. In fact, I think that we're going to be, we will be outside of South Florida. We're going to be the Austin in the middle of Texas, just the way, the LGBT community has kind of flocked to um, to St. Petersburg. That you know are you know that we still have a um, a diverse community in Tampa. Like I just think that it's going to stay very purple here in Pinellas and and Hillsborough. Um, but I think it's time to make the deal with the devil in 2022. And you know, like I'm going to play in some primaries, some Republican primaries where. I've got to stop lunatics from getting elected because there's just no Democrat even going to run in some of these um, congressional seats that used to even be in play. And so I've got to like, how do I stop the Anthony Sabatini's of the world? How do I stop? um, You know, there's this lunatic Brian Cloudis running in House District six against a great candidate, uh, you know, that's kind of in the mold of Jay Trumbull. You know, like, how do we how do we keep, you know, like and. We made Wilton Simpson our politician of the year um, this year. And the reason why, or one of the reasons that Democrat why- Wilton Simpson, how could you do such a thing? I know. <laughs> we made- uh, how, by the way, I have not heard, you know, politics has totally lost its way in general when people confuse Wilton Simpson with anything other than a very deep conservative. I, there, if you go on the Facebook page for that story, there are just so many people saying, oh, he's, uh, this is this is another Florida politics hit job on Republicans. I'm like, no, he's he's a he is a Pasco County Republican. He is a I mean, he's a Pasco he's, County. He lives in Trilby. I went there once. And when I got there, the population of Democrats went from zero to one. OK, I mean, the guy lives on an egg farm. Uh, I mean, you know, he, he couldn't his life, the area his politics could not get more uh, Republican. He's not a lunatic. If that's what defines being Republican, he couldn't get fine. more conser- limited government conservative. Like, like I, I just I'm amazed at. And if you look at it, if you look at Wilton Simpson's record, it's been very conservative. It is, uh, um, it is what you want out of the Senate. I, like one of the things, and we discussed the selection internally we actually debated intensely like on our Slack channels and things like that. And there were people that were just pushing for us to pick like internally, like art, like, you know, AG Gankarski was a big, Hey, DeSantis has got to be the person, et cetera. And I was, I think one of the things that I made the argument for Simpson was the Senate really was a cooling off uh, as it should be. It was a cooling off for some of the hot ideas that would come out of the house that would come out of, um, the governor's office and people, it's hard to prove a double negative 
But there's a lot of legislation that people disagree with on the Democratic side, House Bill 1, et cetera, the transgender bill, the voting th stuff. It could have been a lot worse were it not for cooler heads prevailing behind the scenes out of the Florida Senate. That's not yeah, to say you, that you mitigate bad policies. I tell my Democratic colleagues this all the time, which is, listen, we're in the minority. We have we don't have the numbers. We have no ability to stop legislation, but we can take bad legislation and make it less bad. I know that's not like something people run on. They're like, oh, I want to get up there because I want to make stuff less bad. Right. But voting no and carrying on versus working behind the scenes, trying to make a policy that, you know, is going to pass. It is a foregone conclusion, working behind the scenes, doing the hard work uh, and trying to lessen that. That is what we have right now. You're still going to vote. No, you're still going to carry on. But you got to work behind the scenes. Uh, and 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 in there are instances and there are people out there uh, that are willing to to listen. But this thing that's going on in both parties of eating our own, I mean, I, I've served with both Senator Simpson, now President Simpson, Representative Sprouls, now Speaker Sprouls. I can tell you I've not had one conversation. I've not had one moment. I've not had one light bulb in which I thought, oh, these guys are moderate. Never once. <laughs> Those are conservatives. It's as conservative as it gets. You know, just because they're also you know, and maybe we have a different level of access. Like, listen, I've had Chris Sproles call me at 9, 9.30, 10 o'clock, off grid, off the record. And so what's your problem with this bill? Why are you giving me shit on Twitter about it? And I'm like, well, I mean, aren't, aren't you just giving police the power to hang black people? He's just like, no, you idiot. Let me tell you what is really going on with this bill. Um, and And he walks me through it and he hears my concerns. Now, I get it. I'm the publisher of a media organization. It's my job. Not every citizen gets that. But I'm. there is thought behind this. This is not like they just got back from that, you know, ALEC convention and were listening to Mark Levin and decided to put this bill through. They, I think also, and I, I, I say this a lot, and I don't think, I don't think Democrats want to hear it. These people win Republican primaries and then there are no Democrats. So the what they do, they they are responsive to the people who elected them, which are GOP primary voters. And the GOP primary voters, God bless their souls, you know, they're not as far right as people would like you to believe, but they are concerned about immigration. They are concerned about crime. And it, they are concerned about these issues. And so when you hear and when you see Joe Gruder's putting forward an immigration bill, that's because when he went back home, and when he was out at the town halls and when he was at the restaurants, that is what people are bitching at him for. They are not talking to him about expanding Medicaid. That is just not being discussed in Venice. That's not being discussed in Clay County. And so I, I give them credit. Like, I think one of the things that I, I think it was 2015, 2016, the Republicans did not lose a single incumbent race. And that was after... Steve Crisofoli closed down session. That was after the Medicaid debate. That was after the redistricting lawsuits, et cetera. It had all these bad headlines. Not one Republican incumbent was turned out by their voters. So I don't, I don't think people see the lack of incentive on the Republican side to somehow become, you know, neoliberals also. So 
Um, yeah. No, there's, there, there, there's no, there's no doubt about that. And, and that's why you see this performative politics thing where people, you know, all of a sudden take a position and you're thinking to yourself, well, they don't, why are they doing that? They're doing that because they're placating. They're, they're, they're doing what their people back home are telling them they want a lot of which is fed to them through Fox every day or, or, or radio. I mean, all of this is related. Let's not pretend like all of a sudden, you know, people in a district, all of a sudden immigration was on the top of their mind. They're fed immigration every day from the sources. And then all of a sudden they go to a, a meeting and yes, immigration is the number one thing. I mean, that's just how this works and it's all, it's all related. But this idea that if you're a 99 percenter, 99 percenter you're you're actually a, you're you're a a, a dino or a rhino uh it, it is it is wild it is a wild phenomenon and but what it is causing it is causing is those people who are 99 percenters or 98.6 percenters it is moving them to the left or the right because they're seeing that's what they're hearing at home and they're seeing that they're going to get primaried from the left and the right and people are going to attack them on it. And so it is moving people. It is moving some of the moderates. They're either leaving or or they're changing their positions. Or I'm, I'll be honest, I'm one of these people like I'm never I mean, I'm I just don't have the deepest. I'm not attached to a lot of this stuff. And I um, because I see I, I guess I talked to both sides. I just want everything to kind of operate like Pinellas, you know, where we've got a Republican sheriff, you know, we've got one Republican congressman, we've got one Democratic congressman, uh, you know, we've got, you know, we've got Jeff Brandis, but we've also got Ken Welch and Rick Reisman. And so it's like, we've got this, we hammer out this moderation and that's why, you know, Pinellas is actually pretty well governed. Well, you know, you don't, I can't remember the last time one of our county commissioners you know, was indicted. I can't remember the last time, you know, we've had a big scandal in the sheriff's office. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually, there hasn't been a lot of that kind of news um, out of our end. All right. We got to, we got to wrap up here because we are going on over an hour here. Um, can we close? Can I ask you, cause I have a great answer to mine. You made an argument. What was the movie that you thought was a, a Christmas movie at the beginning at the top of the hour? Gremlins. Gremlins is a Christmas movie. All right, I'm going to add that. Mine is less than zero. Um, <laughs> the Andrew McCarthy uh, uh, movie from Brett Easton Ellis's book uh, set in L.A., Robert Downey Jr. Uh, at his, like, drug-addled worst. Um, it's all set there, and I just, I love that movie. It's so, it's so 80s. Um, I think Jamie Gertz is in it, and she's at the, like, peak of her powers. Um, just, like, just so smoking hot at that point. And so that's my addition to the diehard well, list. Of I decided to play gremlins for my kids. And you're talking about, you know, Chris Columbus, Steven Spielberg, Kathleen Kennedy. I mean, it just has an all-star. Spielberg did that? God, I forgot. Spielberg that. did that. Yeah. Spielberg and Chris, Christopher Columbus, you know, wrote it and helped direct it and helped produce it. Kathleen Kennedy helped produce it. I mean, just an all-star of people who have gone on to do unbelievable things. And so I, I was like, come on, kids, let's watch Gremlins. And they were like, oh, look, Mogwai, he's so cute. Can we get one of those? And then all of a sudden they ate after midnight. And uh, my youngest one has had two sleepless nights. So that was not a great yeah, idea I, by I'll me. I'll be honest, Gremlins to me is scary. Like it was, first of all, it's creepy. It's very creepy. It was just, um, 
you know, we hadn't seen a lot of that yet. You know, this is like pre-special effects. Um, you know, it was, you know, the horror films were different than, you know, you only really had slasher movies. You didn't have this kind of movie that was like you say, like you, the first 20 minutes of it, you're like, oh, this is fantastic. This guy's got a new, a new pet. And then, then it's just, it's really gross the way that they, that they, you know, they pop out of each other and. Oh yeah. Uh, they all wanted, they all wanted a gizmo. And now, now they don't, now they don't want to finish the movie. No, it's, and I will say get gremlins too, a disaster of a movie, a, just a complete disaster of a movie, but is really creepy and is really tough to watch. Gremlins 2 was, by the way, we should do that. Let's make a list of the worst sequels of all time. And Gremlins 2 is definitely on that list. Yeah, uh, it just, it, you, I, I remember it was the guy who plays the bad guy in Scrooge. The, he plays the California executive. Um, and I, I, I don't know his name, but he was like the corporate, he was the, the Donald Trump figure. Um, do you ever notice, by the way, how many movies Trump was in? back in that period like like he is in home alone and like he pops up in these like um you know like he's idolized in american psycho and it's just like you just don't realize how we wonder how he was president or some people wonder and it's like he was ubiquitous with from 80s 90s culture he was he was just I, I, he was elon musk real like i know he was not an inventive or whatever but like in the same way that like we put like this one corporate leader in like as the avatar for all of capitalism, that's who Donald Trump was. I mean, well, well, by I, the way, it's we all know he's in Home Alone and obviously that movie gets so much play. I mean, my kids have always pointed him out in Home Alone, but now my kids- Ella loves Home Alone, by the way. Freaking yeah, they, lo they love it. Home Alone. We talk about also a movie that had a good sequel. Home Alone 2 was a good sequel. Yes, I agree. Uh, but but by the way, they have were you ever watching... left your kids at home like that? Is that have you ever have you ever forgotten one of your kids just like we're... no? But that's not really the question you should ask me. The question you should ask me is: I ever thought about doing it? <laughs> okay, that's really the question you should ask me. But but they they're watching Little Rascals, and Donald Trump's in Little Rascals also sitting. Is in he the... really? Yes, he's sitting in the stands next to Whoopi Goldberg. It's a wild thing. He's that's what I'm saying. Like you do a movie in New York. Um, and it's like Trump just pops up like and like Trump Tower. I think it was like in Brewster's millions. Like it just it's just everywhere. Um, like uh, he was just everywhere, basically from 84, um, 84 on. You got another good Christmas. What's a what was your what, what's your go to Christmas movie? Uh, my wife and I are big Ryan Reynolds fans. So I don't know if you've seen this movie. Called I'm sure just your wife Friends. is. Yes, she is. Mm -hmm. Uh I don't know if you've ever seen this movie called Just Friends with Ryan Reynolds and Anna Faris. Yes. It is, is one of his first movies, but it is very hilarious. Like I like uh, up up there for me, like I was an early, early Ryan Reynolds fans when he did real comedies, you know, uh, and and Just Friends is a hilarious Christmas movie. If you've not seen it. He was amazing in Van Wilder. I've, uh, he's a, such a star. Um, he's so charismatic. Um, no, Van Wilder for me is right there with like old school and like the, that group of movies that kind of came out at that time. Van Wilder, Van Wilder doesn't get the same it doesn't. level that like old school gets, does it? No, like it old doesn't. Old school and some of that Will Ferrell stuff like is held on a, a higher regard than Van Wilder. And Van Wilder was really good. 
It, it was really good. I, and by the way, those are like the comedy movies I want. I want like back. Like I want the the Jim Carrey, Ryan Reynolds, Will Ferrell, like those sort of movies. You know, like you know, like I, I am an Ace Ventura fan. It's you know? so hard. Um, you know, there's just such a um, comedy is so difficult right now, um, and it, people are so afraid of offending the wrong group and, and saying something insensitive um, as they should be, you know, like there are, you know, like, like, I'm sorry, like, not, I'm sorry. Like the Chappelle, um, the Chappelle skit that he did the latter skit, it was too much. It is. I, I thought he was inappropriate. I think it's, is his aggress Like it was really tough because he was so poignant after um, George Floyd <clears throat> and when he talked about the eight minutes where George Floyd was being suffocated to death um, and he did that during the pandemic and it was this just incredible piece. And then, you know, his attacks of the LGBT community on the LGBT community and just his, um, I want to say ignorance, but he's more hateful than just ignorant on, on this stuff man, that's just hard to watch right now. Like, and I yeah. know like, he's like, um, he's become like a icon to the right. And I, I don't know. I just think that they're embracing him because they're so anti anything that's woke. Well, let, let's just end it with this. I mean, here's what I'll tell you. I do, I do think we have gotten a little too soft when it comes to comedy, right? Our skin has gotten a little too thin. I do think there are things that are way off limits, way inappropriate now that were different maybe 20 years ago. But I mean, just think about it. George Carlin, Richard Pryor couldn't survive today. Like these are these are legends that that have been idolized, that people have built their careers off of, you know, after them. Uh, and and if you go if you go watch George Carlin, if you go watch Richard oh, yeah. Pryor, they yeah. could not perform those sets anymore. And Eddie so Murphy, Eddie Murphy couldn't, um, you know, he couldn't do it. I it. I don't even know. I don't know where you go with the comedy right now, other than like, I, I will say, as we say that comedy has a way of figuring itself out. I think other than like the last episode, which was COVID impacted, I thought SNL this season has been very good, very timely um, that, you know, I think that they got so fixated. I, I was so tired of seeing Alec Baldwin as Trump, but um, you know, other than their inability really to knock down, uh, a Joe Biden impression. Um, I think SNL, for what it's worth, has been. By the way, that is that is the scandal of all scandals: the fact that SNL has not figured out how to do a Joe Biden impression. Is it is it the scandal of all scandals? I mean, <laughs> no, obviously it isn't, but it is a true statement. <laughs> They've had like seven Joe Bidens. I still think Sudeikis was good, um, but obviously, you know, he's almost. Right. He's too big to just come back and do. He can't do that every week. So. All right. All right. Well, happy new year to you. Let's get in touch next week. My birthday is January 4th. Maybe you'll indulge me and do a all about Peter podcast on my birthday. We, we can do an all about Peter podcast. Well, happy oh birthday. God, happy no. new year. And listen, we're going into session. Uh, I think this session is going to be hotter than a usual uh, election year session. So I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. It's going to be interesting. All right. Well, uh, I resolve to make sure that we are doing this podcast um, much more in 2022. Jared, best to your dad. Happy New Year. And um, we'll, I'll see you in the new year. Thanks, Peter. All right, man.